It says in Luke chapter 22, verse 1, it says, Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and scribes sought how they might kill him, for they feared the people. Then entered Satan into Judas, surnamed Iscariot, being of the number of the twelve. And he went his way and communed with the chief priests and the captains how he might betray him unto them. And they were glad and they covenanted to give him money. And he promised and sought opportunity to betray him unto them in the absence of the multitude. Then came the day of unleavened bread, when the Passover must be killed. And he sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare us the Passover, that we may eat. And they said unto him, Where wilt thou that we prepare? And he said unto them, Behold, when you are entered into the city, there shall a man meet you, bearing a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house where he enters in. And you shall say unto the goodman of the house, The master saith unto thee, Where is the guest chamber where I shall eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. There make ready. And when the hour was come, he sat down and the twelve apostles with him. And he said unto them, With desire I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer For I say unto you, I will not any more eat thereof until it be fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we thank you again for uh, the things that are written here and the things that they mean. And we would ask, Lord, that you would open our understanding, even as you did those disciples on the road to Emmaus. We ask, Lord, that you would teach us all things out of the word pertaining to yourself and what this means. So help us tonight, Lord. Give us understanding. And so we ask you to teach us, and we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. It has been said that there is a scarlet-colored thread that runs through the entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation. That reference or inference is talking about the blood. And certainly, when we consider the faith that you and I have, and we consider the truth that God has laid before us, we understand the prominence and the preeminence of the theme of the blood in the Bible. There's something about blood that just absolutely gives me the willies. I worked in construction for a lot of years, and in the particular trade that I was in, I was exposed to just about uh, everything that you can There were so many things. I remember days that I was covered in uh, human waste, you know, from the chest down and just different things. Not a plumber, but as a carpenter, you kind of get your hands into everything. And all of that's okay. You know, I don't mind that. And I've raised and am raising five kids. And and as such, I've I've had to deal with every sight and smell and, uh, you you know, feel of of all kinds of things that just aren't normal and, and just can make people skeevish. And all of that's good with me. But I remember the first time I saw one of my kids bleed. It was my daughter, Hosanna, and we were jogging together when she was probably, I don't know, six or something like that. And we were running down um, a hill on a road near our house, and there was a a patch of loose gravel, and she slipped, and she went down and, and just really gashed her knee. And I remember just seeing the blood begin to run down her shin, and, and something happened inside. It was, I, it was almost like this 
faint that was coming over me, just to see blood that was coming out of her, and, and just to realize what it was, and just the fear. And I remember, I'm pretty steady. I don't like have one of those shakes yet, you know, that come with age or whatever. You know, but I remember just carrying her home and just quivering, shaking, you know, seeing this and just being literally scared, even though I knew what it was. I mean, my knees are covered with scars from when I was a child. I knew it was no big deal. But there's something about the blood that makes us skirmish. And so when we consider and think about the preeminence of the theme of the blood in the Bible, sometimes it makes people squirmish. We have been accused of following a bloody religion just because of how, how much and how often we see the blood pictured in Scripture. Well, in the passage that we have before us tonight, we begin to understand, to a greater measure at least, why the blood is such an important part of the Bible and of this faith and of what we believe. The passage itself that we're reading here, Luke chapter 22, revolves around the yearly celebration known as the Passover. I heard this morning on, uh, on, on a radio station that just happened to be playing in the background where I was, um, uh, just kind of some commentary that was going on about the Passover that's being celebrated this day by the Jews. And to this day, even from antiquity until now, the Passover is still the most widely observed and the most highly esteemed of all of the Jewish holidays that are kept. And this is the day that these things in this passage are taking place, and it's the day that we are observing when we celebrate Good Friday as Christians. So what is the Passover, and why is it so significant and so prominent in the things of God? Well, in the days of Moses, when the children of Israel were in Egypt and they were there as slaves, God was in the process of setting them free. And he was visiting Egypt with various plagues. He was working on the Pharaoh to let the people go. And as the plagues grew more intense, and as the time drew nearer for God's people to be set free, the Lord came to Moses and he said, Moses, I've got something special I want you to do. He said, you're to command the children of Israel that every man, every family is to take a lamb. And on the 10th day of the first month, they're to take that lamb into their home. And it's to be with them in the house from the 10th day until the 14th day. And he said, it's to be a male of the first year and it's to be absolutely perfect. There's to be no blemish at all in the lamb that you will choose. And then on the 14th day, Moses, you're going to take that lamb and you're going to kill it. And God specifically says, in the presence of all the congregation of Israel. So this is going to be a very public execution of this innocent yearling of a lamb that's been now in your house for these days. And then, Moses, what you're to tell the people to do is that they're going to take some of the blood from that lamb and they're going to put it on the frame of the door and on the two sides of the door of their house where they would go out and where they would come in. And it's amazing to me to consider that when they would do that, they would put blood above the head and on the two sides, the blood on the top would drip down to the threshold of the door where you would pass through, and it would make the perfect shape of a cross dipped in blood. And God said, that night, on that night, I'm going to cause my angel to pass through the land of Egypt. And in every house, there's going to be a death. 
The firstborn in every house is going to die that night unless I see the blood. If I see the blood applied to the door of that house, then the death angel will pass over that house. And everyone in that house will remain alive. Everyone in that house will be spared. But where I don't see the blood, then the firstborn in that house will surely die. And so Moses commanded the children of Israel. They heeded the word of Moses. They applied the blood to the door of the house. And amongst all those in Egypt where there was no blood, there was a great cry made at the death of the firstborn in those homes. But in the homes where the blood was, there was no death at all, and thus it was the Passover. And then God said to Moses, is that you're to observe this feast on this day every year as a token of remembrance for the things that I did on that day. And thus the children of Israel, every year, they keep the Passover in remembrance of what God did in setting them free from Egypt. The blood of an innocent lamb applied to the door, sparing from death, making the way for liberty and freedom and deliverance. And thus they would keep the feast. And so we're told in this passage that it's the season now, we're told in verse 1, of the Passover, that the time of the Passover drew nigh. And Luke sets the stage for us as to what's happening in the context surrounding this particular Passover. He tells us, first of all, that the chief priests and the scribes are looking for a way in which they can execute Jesus. They're jealous of his influence that they have over the people that they want to influence, and they're upset by the fact that Jesus is not conforming to their system of things. In their mind, he's a rebel, and he's winning the influence of the people, and therefore they need to have him eliminated. They want him dead. And at the same time, their desire to see Jesus executed is coupled with this man Judas, who was one of the 12 apostles that Jesus chose. And Judas, as we learn, never had any real interest in the spiritual aspect of what Jesus was doing, and he had no real appreciation for who Jesus was. And somewhere in Judas's mind, there was this great disconnect between the 12 thrones that Jesus promised to the, to the 12 apostles, and now this cross that he's talking about going to and this death that he's going to die. And being disillusioned by what he expected from life versus what he's been handed, at least seemingly at this time, he decides, I'm going to take whatever I can get out of this. I'm going to try to make a few bucks on this whole three years now that in his mind was wasted and I'm going to betray Jesus unto these high priests. And so you have the perfect storm of a desire in the powers that be to see Jesus eliminated. And now you have Satan inspiring Judas to sell the Lord literally into their hand. And that's the background of what's taking place in this season of the Passover. Then we're told that the day of the Passover arrives in verse 7. It says, then came the day of unleavened bread when the Passover must be killed. And so on this day, as they're preparing to now eat this Passover together, Jesus sends two of his disciples, Peter and John, to go and prepare the feast to make it ready for them in the place that God ordained. And it's an amazing way in which Jesus sets the stage. He does it in a way 
wherein Judas will not be able to betray Jesus during the Passover supper. He gives them this strange thing. He says, listen, you're going to go into the village. You're going to see a man, follow him into the house, talk to the owner of the house. He, just say this to him. He'll know what you're talking about. That's the place where we're going to eat. And Judas is sitting there going like, oh, can't betray him there. You know? And that's exactly what Jesus wanted. He wanted that night to be the night that he would have a special fellowship with the 12 that he had spent that three and a half years with, and it wasn't to be interrupted by any of Satan's designs or what would take place after it. And so on this day of the Passover now, Jesus sets the stage and he prepares the place where they'll eat it. And then we're told in verse 14 that when the hour was come, And so now finally, this Passover that seems to have been so special unto the Lord is finally at hand. And I want you to just listen again to what Jesus says concerning this particular Passover. It says that he said unto them, with desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. And then he says this, listen, verse 16. He says, for I say unto you, I will not eat any more thereof until it be fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And what Jesus is communicating to them there by saying those words that I will not eat any more of this Passover until it is fulfilled, he is saying that this Passover that we're sitting down to eat right now is the last Passover feast that will ever be eaten by man before what this Passover represents is ultimately fulfilled. And what Jesus is letting them in on here is that not only was the yearly celebration of keeping the Feast of Passover a memorial of what had been in ancient Egypt, but it was also a rehearsal of something greater yet to come. And what Jesus was saying to them is that all of the lambs that were slain for all of these thousands of years and all of the blood that was applied and all of the prayers that were offered and all of the symbolism in the ritual that was performed, all of that is about to be fulfilled in that thing for which it was appointed on this night. That's what Jesus is letting them know. When Jesus came into the world and on the scene in his earthly ministry, The first thing that happened is that John the Baptist, the last of the prophets, pointed at Jesus Christ, and the first words out of his mouth were, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 3, no, it's chapter 1. Is it going to go up on the screen? Because this happens to be the only place I didn't put my little post-it notes that you guys see sticking out of the the Bible. I want to read it to you. It's 1 Peter 1, verse 18. He says, For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold from your vain conversation or lifestyle received by the tradition of your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who truly was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. Jesus Christ being the fulfillment of what the Passover represented in the pure lamb being slain, whose blood would then be applied 
for the forgiveness of our sins. And so the Passover and the significance of the Passover is that they were rehearsing for the greater sacrifice that Jesus is about to accomplish. Well, once they've now sat down at this feast and Jesus has laid the context for what is about to take place by him going to the cross and paying the price for their sins, he now gives to them the words and essentially the rite of what we would call the Lord's Supper. Notice what it says in verse 17. After sitting down with them and telling them what it is, he says, it says that he took the cup and he gave thanks. And he said, take this and divide it amongst yourselves. For I say unto you that I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God shall come. And he took bread and he gave thanks and he broke it. And he gave to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. This do in remembrance of me. Likewise, also the cup, now again, after supper, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood, which is shed for you. And so Jesus now sitting, having their attention, with all of them listening, he lifts up this cup right in front of them. And as he holds it up, he, first of all, gives thanks. And then he gives it to them and he says, Divide it amongst yourselves. Now, in that Jesus gave thanks, he was doing much more than just simply saying grace. You know how we do before we share in a meal together. He was thanking God for that cup and for its contents and what it represented. And in the Bible, we understand that the cup means something. As we read it and its symbolism throughout the Bible, the cup always represents a person's life. In Psalm chapter 16 Verse 5, David, who writes, he says that the Lord is the portion of my inheritance and of my cup, that he maintains my lot. He's talking about his life and the contents of his life. We all know, again, that famous psalm, Psalm 23, the shepherd's psalm. And what does David say there? He says that my cup runs over, Psalm 23, verse 5. He says, you anoint my head with oil and my cup runneth over, speaking about the contents of his life. And so what Jesus is essentially doing here is he holds up this cup, and when he gives thanks for it, he's giving gratitude to God for what it is and for what it represents and for even what he's about to do as he passes it away from in front of himself, and now he gives it to the twelve, and he says, divide it amongst yourselves. Split it amongst yourselves in equal portions. I'm giving away the rights of this cup, and it's leaving from in front of me, and it's being placed in front of you. Divide it amongst yourselves. Jesus gives to them the cup. He doesn't tell them why yet or what it is. He's going to come back to it, but he first gives the cup. And then he moves to the bread. And as he holds up the bread before him, they watch as he takes it in his hands and he breaks it. And again, giving thanks for it, knowing the value of what it is and acknowledging it before God. And he hands it to them, but the bread, he tells them what it is and what it represents. He says to them, this bread, a symbol, a picture of my body, my earthly tent, this flesh that's being inhabited by a holy God. And he broke it in their presence, and he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. And it says that as he gave thanks, that he gave it to them, the breaking of his body. This isn't the first time that Jesus used this reference. 
In one of his interactions with the religious rulers, it's recorded for us in John's Gospel, that Jesus said, I am the bread of God that comes down from heaven and gives my life to the world. In the same passage, he said, I am the bread of life. And here now, as we see him breaking that bread, he says, my body must be broken, and it will be broken for you. And then he gave it up to them in it. And then after supper, it tells us then that he took the cup again. He left it for a moment, and now he comes back to the cup, and then he tells them what it is, and it's in verse 20. It says that he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the New Testament in my blood, which is shed for you. That's probably why he didn't tell them before dinner what it was, you know, because that's a picture you got to have in your mind all night while you're drinking from that cup, you know, and after they drank it, he then tells them what it represents and what it symbolizes. The cup which symbolizes the life is contained with or filled with, its contents are the blood. Leviticus chapter 17 verse 11 tells us why the blood is so sacred to God and why it's so important. It says, because the life of the flesh is in the blood. And God said, I have given it to you upon the altar to make an atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes an atonement for the soul. But he says that the life is in the blood. And thus when Jesus gives to them the cup, which represents his life, and it contains the blood that is his life and who he is, what he is doing is he is imparting to them the very essence of who he is right down to the very soul. And he is willingly giving that away to his disciples that are sitting there, those who have walked with him. And so what Jesus is doing in this first communion supper is that in a very intimate and very illustrative way, he is showing to them the significance of what is about to take place upon the cross. Now, the disciples that are there taking it in they're clueless as to the significance and the weight of what's really going on. We know that because of what happens next in the passage. We're not going to read it, but in verses 21 all the way down to verse 38, there are essentially three interactions, three conversations that take place after the supper at the table that illustrate the cluelessness of the disciples. The first is that Jesus says, hey, someone at this table is going to betray me. And the discussion that ensues turns into an argument over who will be the greatest in the kingdom of God. Completely misguided on their behalf and interpretation of a thing. The second interaction is just between Jesus and one of those men that were there, the man Peter. And Jesus singles Peter out and he says, Peter, Satan has asked for you that he might sift you like wheat. But when you're converted, strengthen the brothers. And, and Peter, he's clueless too. Because he looks back at the Lord and he goes, Lord, you know, you're God, but you don't know everything. Because I won't deny you. And not only will I not deny you, Lord, but I will die for you. You who say that I'll deny. And Jesus said, no, Peter, but before the cock crows three times, or before the cock crows, you're going to deny that you even know me three times. Peter, again, not knowing his own heart, not knowing what's going on, not knowing the fullness of who he's talking to. And then finally, the third interaction is Jesus then again addresses the 12. And he says, listen, guys, things are about to change. All the while that we walked together, did you ever have any problems? Was there any lack? Was there any issue? He's saying, listen, for a season, it's going to be a little bit different than the way things were. And they look at him and they say, Lord, you want us to get some guns? 
You want us to take arms, get some swords, and we've got two, Lord. And Jesus has to say, okay, that's enough. But they don't have a clue as to what's going on. And, and you know, that kind of encourages me. Because the longer I walk with the Lord, the more I come to know Him, and as we do, you know, church, and as we just grow in the things of God, I realize more and more how clueless I am to how large He really is and what He's really done and the price that He truly paid. And though He's letting these guys in, they don't fully understand what's taking place and what's about to take place. But Luke records for us now the thing that happens next, and it helps us to understand just the weight and the severity of what's about to happen and what it actually cost the Lord to do what he did. I want to read from verse 39. It says that when he came out, so now the supper is over, and he went as he was wont to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. And when he was at the place, he said unto them, Pray that you enter not into temptation. And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw, and he kneeled down and he prayed, saying, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And there appeared an angel unto him from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat was, as it were, great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose up from prayer and was come to his disciples, he found them sleeping for sorrow, literally to add to the sorrow that he was already feeling. And he said unto them, Why sleep ye? Rise and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The thing that we see here in this passage is, first of all, the place where Jesus went. It's a garden that was called Gethsemane. The word Gethsemane literally translated olive press. And it was a garden that was laden with olive trees in a place where olives were harvested. It was on the Mount of Olives. And the olive press was the place that when the olives were gathered, they would then be crushed in order to extract the preciousness of the oil that was contained therein. And in this place called olive press, we see the purity of the Lord and we see the crushing that's beginning to take place within his life. We see the action of what happened in this moment when Jesus was in this garden is that a cup was placed before him. Somehow metaphysically, supernaturally, spiritually, as Jesus is there in the garden and as Jesus is praying, there's a cup that appears before him. And there's something about this cup that's being placed in front of the Lord that he recognizes what it is and he doesn't want it. And he begins to be in agony about it. And he begins to pray that this cup might pass from him, if it's possible, nevertheless yielding to the will of God. But it's clear that he doesn't want the cup that's being placed before him. And the effect of this cup is sorrow and agony. It tells us in Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 26, verses 37 and 38 that Jesus at this point began to be sorrowful and very heavy. And that he even said to his disciples, those three that were with him, Peter, James, and John, he said, my soul is exceeding sorrowful even unto death. Tarry ye here and watch and pray. This is the first time any emotion like this is ever seen in Jesus Christ in his earthly ministry. 
We never ever see Jesus at any time while he was with the disciples experiencing this type of sorrow that was self uh, uh, um, centered, and not self centered in the selfish sense, but in that it was focused on himself. We see Jesus weeping at the tomb of Lazarus. We see Jesus having compassion on people that were in need, but never towards himself. But this is the first time now that Jesus is becoming emotionally unstable in and of himself. And what this event marks for you and I is the beginning of what we would call the passion or the cross. It's beginning even now while he's yet in the garden. And so we see this um, agony that's coming over the Lord. And and the amazing thing is that of all the things that are going to happen... From this point forward, as he goes to the cross, this is the part that seems to be, at least in the language, the part that was the most difficult and the most agonizing for Jesus. It's just this part in the garden, even prior to his betrayal. Now, before we, we, we go on and look at the, 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 um, the, the severity of what's going on in this time, just to mention is that there's something going on in this passage that you and I will never understand, at least until we get to heaven. And that is this interaction between the Father and the Son. The Bible teaches us that God is one, that there is one God. But yet the Bible also teaches us that he exists in three equal persons, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And though those three are distinct, yet the Bible is clear that those three are one, that they're inseparably unified. And that's a mystery to you and I. We can't fully understand how that works, how they can be one, and yet there's a distinction in their person. How is Jesus talking to the Father, and what does that mean? We don't fully understand it, but we must recognize that the Bible teaches it and reveals it, even though it's beyond what we can comprehend in our earthly limitations. And so there's this interaction taking place between the Father and the Son. There's a cup that is clearly being handed to Jesus by the Father. And Jesus is being asked to drink it. And Jesus is pleading that if it be possible that he not drink that cup, that another way would be made if, if, if it's not God's will for him to do it. And thus he will. So there's two things happening here in this passage that had never happened in all of eternity past, not from the foundation of the world or any time before that in eternity past. The first thing that's happening here that had never happened before is that all of the sin of humanity was being placed upon Jesus Christ. And when I say that the sin of humanity was being placed upon Jesus Christ, what that means is that the action of the sins committed by every human being that ever lived, past, present, and future, every sin was being placed upon him in title. Second of all, the shame associated with every one of those sins was being placed upon him. And then third, the consequence for all of those sins was being placed upon Jesus Christ, and it was beginning here at this time now. An interesting thing is that when Jesus gave away the cup, at the Last Supper, the cup that contained his blood. That cup contained the preciousness of his purity, of his innocence and of his life, the essence of who he was. And when he gave that cup to his disciples, he released everything that he had rightfully earned by living a pure life and by being the pure Son of God. And he gave it away. But in the process of doing that, there had to be something given back to him. 
In order for someone to receive the cup that was being passed to them by Christ, the cup that was in front of them then had to be exchanged. So we begin to understand what this cup was that was now being given to Jesus that he didn't want to receive. It was the cup of all of humanity. It was the collective cup of which the wine that is your life and mine collectively filled. All of the actions, all of the rebellion, all of the sin, all of the selfishness, and all of its manifestation and all of its wickedness, from the little small things to the great, 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 great big things, all of those things were in that cup that was now placed in front of him. And it wasn't just that Jesus was going to take that cup and put it on the table in front of him, but he was going to have to drink that cup, and what was in it was actually going to become a part of him. See, understand that when Jesus Christ bore the sin of humanity upon himself, it wasn't just a file that was switched in a computer somewhere in the cosmos. Okay, well, we're going to take all the list of these sins, and we're going to put them on Jesus' record, and we're going to take Jesus' innocence, and we're going to put it on someone else's record. And that's it. It's done now. We've done it. It wasn't just that. It was that. But it was more than that is that Jesus, when he took the sin of humanity, he took the impurity of it. He took the defilement of it. And it says in the Bible that he who knew no sin became sin for us. I have a 14-year-old son. And he's homeschooled. And he's a good, good, good young man. And by the grace of God, we've been able to keep him pretty pure, I think. You know, as far as my limited knowledge and understanding of things go. But what if my 14-year-old son one, one day was walking along and he passed through a doorway and he opened up that door. And as he walked into the room, as he comes into the room, every impure, sickening, disgusting thing is all, all of a sudden just exposed to him all at once. He sees wretched filth that I don't even want to say, just the most disgusting of things. He hears things, sounds and words and stories and jokes. And he's exposed to conversations and people and things and and just all of the defilement of what humanity can be. And all of a sudden, he's just hit with that all at once. And the impurity of it just immediately begins to permeate his being. The images are burned into his brain. The smells, the sights, the sounds, the spiritual part of it, it just gets into him at that moment. Now, just take that, take that, that, that picture, that feeling, and multiply it times a gazillion. Because you have the perfect son of God who's never known any darkness or sin. He's known nothing but the pure light of God for all of eternity. And in one moment now, as he drinks this cup, all of the sin of humanity is being imputed into him and the defilement of it is being given to him. He's feeling the, the absorption of it. Not only the impurity of the sin, but the shame associated with the sin. Imagine again with me for just a minute that there was a man or a woman and they were just the most disgusting of human beings, just filled with all vile wickedness, guilty of murder and pedophilia and rape and trafficking and just, you just name the sin and they have just committed it, the crime and the the, the rap sheet. And for all of their adult existence, they've been able to kind of go under the radar and they've never been exposed for the filth that they truly are. 
but they've been being tracked. And a case has been being built up against them by authorities and people that have been listening in and spying. And finally, there's going to be a bust. And so there's a hotel room in Atlantic City or somewhere. And as soon as that filth of a human being walks into the room, that will be the nail in the coffin that will seal the case. And the authorities will move in and they'll have solid proof that this man is guilty of every single crime and they'll be able to bring him to trial and to justice for all of those wicked things that he did. And imagine that me being benevolent and being compassionate and kind and wanting to show the depths of what my mercy could be towards a repentant sinner. I were to take my son, my 14-year-old son, and I were to say to him, son... And, and again, we're one, and, and I know that bad illustration once you try to incorporate the Trinity on things, but just for the sake of understanding the point. And I were to say, son, here's what I want you to do. I believe that man will repent of his sin. And I believe that man will wake up, and I believe that man will turn, and that there's something that's redeemable in him. But son, what I need you to do right now is I need you to walk into that hotel room that he's about or supposed to walk into. And when you do that, son, you're going to be pinned with every single one of his crimes. And tomorrow morning when the newspaper comes out, it's going to be your face on the cover of that newspaper. And when the thing goes viral and everybody finds out all of the things that this man did, it's going to be your face that's seen and your name that's smeared and my reputation as well because I'm your father. We're going to absorb the sin of that filth and the shame of it. All of it is going to be laid upon you. Again, a poor illustration of the severity of the shame. But Jesus felt not just the defilement of the sin, but the shame of it. Hebrews chapter 12. It says in verse 2, It says, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of God. Now, the amazing thing is that in all of that, is that not only was the sin, the action, and the shame laid upon him, But then also what follows is the consequence. And the second thing that had never happened for all of eternity began to happen as Jesus was there in the garden. And that was that as Jesus took the sin of humanity upon himself, for the first time ever, there was a separation between the Father and the Son. Is that somehow, in a way that you and I cannot understand, in the justice of God... The father had to look upon the son as though he was actually guilty of committing the sins that he didn't commit. This perfect love, the love that drove Jesus every day of his earthly life. He said in John chapter 17, verse 5, just before going back to heaven, he said, Father, now glorify me with the glory I had with you before the world was. That was his hunger. That was his drive. That's what made him move was his connection to the Father. And for the first time in all of eternity, that connection was severed. 
as he who knew no sin became sin for us, drinking the cup of our shame and of our iniquity and taking it unto himself. The separation. That was the agony that Jesus was feeling in the garden of Gethsemane. Knowing that the sin and the shame and the consequences of that sin were about to be laid upon him in separating him from his father. Something that had never been done for all of eternity. To the point where it says, Luke records, that he began to sweat, as it were, great drops of blood. The agony of it. When my firstborn, Hosanna, was born, she's 16 now, she was a big baby. She was nine pounds, one ounce. And my wife, not, not a big girl, that was some labor. And I remember it was about 24 hours, and she pushed for a good portion of those hours. And the pushing was so intense that literally her face had splotches of red all over it. Like, just, it was weird. It looked like freckles, but they were deep and splotchy. She almost looked like a leper, you know, just strange, you know. But what it literally was, was it was blood that had been, through the force of the pushing, it had been forced out to the surface, and it stayed there like a temporary tattoo. It took about a week for that to kind of go back and to filter through and flow through. But I remember seeing the agony of what caused that to happen. The, the stress that she was under in trying to push that through. And the idea is the same exact thing as what was happening to Jesus as he was in the garden and the agony and the crushing of what was going on there as he absorbed and began to absorb what he absorbed. Father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass for me to the point where the blood forced to the surface. The agony of resisting the temptation to run. Resisting the temptation to say, no, I don't think I can do it. I don't think I can bear it. And for the first time in all of eternity, something was hard for God. The Bible says, is anything too hard for the Lord? And of course, the answer to that is no, nothing is too hard for the Lord. But what Jesus endured in the Garden of Gethsemane and then in the cross that followed, that was hard for God. Isaiah chapter 51, verse 10 says, The Lord has made bare his holy arm in the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. And again in chapter 53, verse 1, sorry, that was 5210, 53.1. He says, who has believed our report and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? You know why that's so amazing? Because the Bible says that God formed the universe with his fingertips in Psalm 8. Finger work. Galaxies, stars, planets, solar systems. The speed and size at which all of that exists. Finger work to God. Just fling it around. But when it came to the price that was paid for our sin to be born upon the cross... God had to roll up his sleeves. His arm had to be born. It was hard for God to do what he did in the garden. You say, well, why did he do it? Hebrews chapter 12 again, verse 2 tells us, it says, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him. The thing that drove Jesus Christ to do it, the joy that he had in doing it, 
was what he would obtain on the other side. What would he obtain on the other side? 1 John chapter 3, verse 1 says, Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God. John chapter 3, verse 16 says, For God so loved the world. Not the system, not the geography or the planet, but you and I, the people made in his image, that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever would believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. What drove Jesus to take that cup and to drink it all the way to the dregs was his love for you and for me. That's why he did it. He took the cup that you and I filled and that we didn't deserve, or that we deserved, and that he absolutely didn't. Isaiah chapter 51, verse 17. It says, Awake, awake, stand up, O Jerusalem, which has drunk at the hand of the Lord the cup of his fury. You have drunk the dregs of the cup of trembling and wrung them out. And then in verse 22, he says, Thus saith thy Lord, the Lord, and thy God, that pleads the cause of his people, Behold, I have taken out of thine hand the cup of trembling, even the dregs of the cup of my fury. You shall no more drink it again. Jesus drunk the cup that you and I filled with our sin. We're going to take communion tonight. And the ushers can come, the musicians can come as we prepare our hearts to receive of the body, receive of the blood, and to remember and receive what Jesus did for us. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. He didn't say do it in remembrance of my miracles or of my sayings, or my teachings, he said, do this in remembrance of me, of my person, of who I am and for what I did on the earth. And so when we do this, when we take communion together as a body and we receive of the, the bread and, and the wine, the elements of this communion, Jesus said that we are demonstrating his death and resurrection. He said, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood given and shed for you, the blood of the New Testament. And so he said, by doing this, he said, you're demonstrating or you're showing the Lord's death until he comes. And so we're demonstrating it. We're remembering what he did with a physical, visible illustration. You know what's amazing about the, the communion supper, what we're about to do? Is that it's the only thing that we can do as Christians that touches all five of our senses. When we take communion... We're seeing something, it's visible. We're touching something, we're actually handling the bread and the cup. We're seeing something that's right before us, we're hearing his word. We're tasting of his goodness. All five of the senses are involved in this thing that we're doing. We're also called to evaluate. Paul the Apostle said that when we take communion that we're to search ourselves by taking the cup and holding it in our hands and looking at it and understanding what it represents, we're to think about what cup it is that we're exchanging. What have I put in my cup? Lord, for me to take this cup and to receive it, 
That means that you're taking something as well. Lord, what's been in my life over the past week or over the past month or over the past year? And we're called to evaluate, to search ourselves. And we're called to anticipate. He said, you do show the Lord's death until he comes. And to remember that he is not still dead, but he is yet alive. We're going to worship, we're going to sing, and we're going to partake. Go ahead.